Good morning. Thank you, choir. That was beautiful. I, I don't often get to be in a sanctuary with such a beautiful choir. That was really, really beautiful this morning. Thank you. Um, our scripture reading this morning is going to be found, if you'd like to, on your pew Bibles on page 60 of the Old Testament. It's a passage from the book of Exodus. On this last Sunday of Epiphany, before we enter into Lent, we find a passage that reminds us of God's grace and power and the way in which we continue to need God's grace and power even after we've experienced it the very first time. So allow me to read the scripture passage. You can feel free to follow along or you can just listen as I read. It's a familiar story to those of us who grew up in Sunday school. As the Israelites find themselves freed by the power of God on Passover night and begin their journey to the promised land, they find themselves now facing the Red Sea. 650,000 of them looking at the Red Sea. 650,000 of them and not a shred of biblical evidence that any of them are good swimmers. And at that moment, they look back and over their shoulders, they see Pharaoh's chariots coming after them. Why? Because Pharaoh can do math. And Pharaoh's figured out that if you have big grand schemes and they're built on the economics of enslaved labor and you let 650,000 of your free workers go, it doesn't pencil out. So here they are, caught between this moment with the Red Sea on one side and Pharaoh's chariots on the other side. And verse 10, we pick up the story. As Pharaoh drew near, the Israelites looked back, and there were the Egyptians advancing on them. In great fear, the Israelites cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us, bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not the very thing we told you in Egypt? Let us alone so we can serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. But Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid. Stand firm and see the deliverance that the Lord will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to keep still. Then the Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry out to me? Tell the Israelites to go forward. But you lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the Israelites may go into the sea on dry ground. Verse 21. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. The Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and turned the sea into dry land, and the waters were divided. The Israelites went into the sea on dry ground, the waters forming a wall for them on their right and on their left. Skip down to verse 26. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and chariot drivers. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and at dawn the sea returned to its normal depth. As the Egyptians fled before it, the Lord tossed the Egyptians into the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the chariot drivers and the entire army of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. But the Israelites walked on dry ground through the sea 
the waters forming a wall for them on their right and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great work that the Lord did against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord and believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. I don't know if you're familiar with a singer and songwriter named Sarah Groves. She's one of my favorites for years. And she has this song called Painting Pictures of Egypt. And there's a line in it that goes like this. The future feels so hard that I want to go back. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever felt that way that all of a sudden you're facing something in your future and it feels so hard you want more than anything to go back to the way it was, even if you look back and you think it wasn't all that great? My job, as John said, what I do today after 27 years of being a Presbyterian pastor and then six years as a seminary administrator, my job today is to work with doctoral students and to consult and coach with church leaders and faith leaders all on organizational change. That's what I do. I do change leadership. And one of the principles that we teach every single place we go is that when you're doing change leadership, when you're taking on leadership into an uncharted territory, into, into a future that is uncertain, when you have decisions to make where there are no, not necessarily any best practices, when you are facing the uncertainty of the future, one of the key principles is you cannot go alone. You cannot go alone. But you haven't succeeded until you survive the sabotage. Sabotage. Sabotage is the thing that happens when the very people who say, we're going to go on this journey together, get scared and turn back. When the very people who ask you to lead them all of a sudden turn on you. When the very people who say, we're with you in this, all of a sudden start pining for the past because it gets hard. When I teach on sabotage, I always say, sabotage is not the bad things that evil people do. Sabotage is the human things that anxious people do. Sabotage comes from fear. And fear and sabotage have always, always, always been part of the story and our story as the people of God. This story in Exodus is, until the resurrection, the greatest story in the Bible. It is the biggest dang deal in the Old Testament. There is nothing bigger than this story. It's the story that gives the people of God their identity. It's the story that prepares the people of God for the Savior of the world. They revisit it over and over and over again. One famous rabbi even said that if you want to know what the Bible teaches, it comes up in one word. Remember. Remember what God has done. Remember what God has done. Remember what God has done. And you'll be faithful from there. An Old Testament professor named E.P. Sanders wrote that the Bible actually doesn't give us models to emulate. Uh, you, you don't want to emulate all the things those guys did. It gives us mirrors we identify with. And in this story, we find ourselves in this story, our own story of their fear and our fear. What we discover that even as Christians, on the other side, not only of the Exodus, but the other side of the resurrection, is that we have a faithful and powerful God. And we are a fearful 
and often sabotaging people. We are together fearful people and faithful God trying to continually move God's redemption story forward. And sabotage is part of that story. Sabotage is part of our story. Sabotage is part of my own story. Sabotage is so powerful that even after we've, ex- even after we've experienced the saving power of God, we find ourselves sometimes getting in the way of the very thing God wants to do because we are so fearful of the future. Just for a second, think back at your own story. How would you tell your own Exodus story? How do you tell the story about how God saved you, met you, entered into your life, changed it? Maybe it was something subtle. Maybe it was something that happened slowly over a long period of time. Maybe it was something sudden, like a almost like the parting of the Red Sea in your own life. Maybe it's something that you can talk about and you've talked about for years. Maybe it's something that you never mentioned to anybody. But deep in your soul, you have this moment that you know that all of a sudden you knew there was a God who loves you and saved you and reached out to you. And you want to spend your life saying yes to that God, even though sometimes you don't. My own story is the story of a God who met me as an angry teenager in the middle of my parents' divorce. My family died in front of me. And I remember the experience of feeling as if I pulled away, as if all of a sudden I wanted to protect myself from anything that would make me feel this sad or this mad ever again. I wondered if I would ever trust again, whether I would love again, whether I would ever belong again to something bigger than myself. I felt enslaved to my history, to my genetics, to my generational family dysfunction. And in the middle of those calloused, hard, fearful, angry years, I met a group of people who introduced me to Jesus, who saw through it and welcomed me to follow him. I found freedom and forgiveness that Christ offers, They showed me the love of a father who would not let me down. And I found a calling in doing for other young people what they had done for me. And eventually, I met a girl. And that young girl, my first friend, who'd also come from a broken home, who so deeply understood what I was going through because she was going through it, Well, she and I will celebrate our 35th wedding anniversary in January. We have two adult children who are spectacular human beings. This is my story. I know the redemptive power of God. I know the freedom that God brings. This is my story. So why now, even after all these years, do I so often become afraid? Why am I afraid to tell that story to other people when I'm not in a pulpit and they're all forced to listen? Why am I sometimes afraid to enter into experiences of where people ask me to share my energy toward justice or love or reaching out to my neighbors? Why am I sometimes still so afraid to take a risky step or be vulnerable? It's because fear is the last thing from which we are freed. Fear is the last thing from which we are freed. We sabotage the work of God, even the work of God that God wants to do through us, because we are a fearful people. 
When we are fearful, we want the familiar. Just think about this. The root word for familiar and family are the same root word, which means that whenever you have to take a, a, a risky step into something unfamiliar, what you end up feeling is unfamilied. You feel abandoned. You feel anxious. You feel orphaned. You're like a little kid who's looked forward to going to Disney World all year. It's not the happiest place on earth if you lose mom and dad on Main Street. But once you've run home to mama and feel safe again, you can adventure again. Fear is the last thing from which we are freed. When we are fearful, we want the familiar. But the God who knows us continually calls us forward. You heard the words in Exodus 14, 14, 15. Tell the Israelites to go forward. Go into that sea. Step forward. At the end of our passage, in Exodus 14, 31, we hear a statement that almost feels like a happy ending, like me telling you the story of my marriage. So the people feared the Lord and believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. It was a great moment, one of the greatest moments in all of Israel. They finally got there, right? What a great story. You know this story. It's so powerful. God frees them from Egypt. He sends them toward the promised land. In Exodus 13, it says he knows their fearful hearts, and he knows that if they run into their ancient foes, the Philistines, that they'll get afraid, so he sends them another way. That other way, of course, is right into the Red Sea, and there they're facing it, and they see the Israelite, the chariots coming after them, and they're caught in the middle, and the people of God do what the people of God always do when they're in the middle of a hard moment. They look up, and they blame the leader. Were there, were, were there not enough graves in Egypt, Moses? Was this your idea? Who said freedom? I didn't say freedom. Did you say freedom? I didn't say freedom. This is Moses' idea. We didn't want freedom. We wanted more straw for the bricks. We wanted a better lunch. Maybe some time off to sing a couple praise songs. No, it was Moses' idea. Moses said freedom. Now we're in this place. Good job, Mo. Way to go. And they blame Moses And Moses calmly says, look up and see what the Lord will do. The Lord parts the Red Sea. They go through on dry land. They get to the other side. And when they get to the other side, they look back. They see the chariots coming after them. Moses waves his hands again. The waters return. And the chariots and chariot drivers end up dead on the beach. They are freed. I mean, really freed. They got a sea between them and Egypt. Egypt's army is dead. They are on the other side. They realize they've been rescued, 650,000 of them. And what do they do? They look up and they strike up the band. They sing a praise song. Two, as a matter of fact. That's all Exodus 15 is. It's two songs. And then they go to lunch. And after lunch, all the problems start, just like today. They say, wait a second. We're going to be camping Who said anything about camping? We didn't prepare for this. We didn't prepare to be out here. Nobody brought the extra tables. We do not have enough food for all these people. Oh my gosh, what's going to happen? And they get hungry. And the Bible says that six weeks, six weeks, you can look it up in Exodus 16, six weeks after they have seen the greatest miracle that any humans would ever see, six weeks, 
And six weeks, and not just three women at the empty tomb, and not 12 guys in an upper room, 650,000 of them all saw and experienced God's delivery, and six weeks later, Lent, or as I tell the Baptists, the time between Thanksgiving and New Year's, six weeks, six weeks later, and they're saying, you know, slavery, they killed our children. But we did have leeks and onions. Maybe we should go back. Six weeks later. Six weeks, one bad lunch, and they're ready to go back to the way it was, even though that was slavery. Because when we are facing an uncertain future, we want the familiar. Even if the familiar is profoundly dysfunctional. So what do we do? What do we learn from this story that can help us in the next six weeks as we lean into Lent, as we head toward the next Exodus event, the death and resurrection, as we prepare to be a church that goes into the future filled with the power and the experience of God? What do we learn here? First of all, we know this. God knows our fearful hearts. Our fear does not surprise God. In Exodus 13, 17, he says, I know they're fearful, and if they run into their ancient foes, the Philistines, they want to go back. Ancient foes, the Philistines. They've been in slavery for 400 years. They haven't seen a Philistine in 400 years. For 400 years, they've been telling Philistine boogeyman stories. Talk about trauma, 400-year-old trauma. But they are still so fearful, and God knows it and calls them anyway. And God knows your fearful heart too. God called you not because you're brave and courageous and have the capacity to do great things. He called you in your fear. God knows our fearful hearts. God knows that we are going to be afraid. God knows we have the capacity to be so fearful that we'd want to go back. It's not a surprise to God. And God is constantly with us in our fear, present to us in power and faithfulness. The story talks all about the presence of God, working through Moses, calling them forward, giving them a pillar of clouds and a pillar of fire, providing for them manna in the desert. God is present to us in our fearfulness. He knows our fearful hearts. He's present to us in in power and faithfulness. And he knows that when we face the unexpected, even then we still want to go back to the familiar. Why? Because fear is the last thing from which we are freed. So what can we do? What can we do in the weeks ahead of this Lenten season when we spend some extra time in reflection, awareness, repentance, confession? One thing is to be wary of your fearful heart. Doubt your doubts. Cast doubt upon your fears. Remember that being fearful is normal and natural, and of course what we would do, but don't let it have the final word. When we're fearful, we want the familiar. It's the longing for the familiar that keeps us forward. Just say to ourselves, I'm afraid because it's unfamiliar. And acknowledge to that. Pay attention to that. Share it with each other. One of the best reasons to read a book together 
is that not the book, but the together. Be wary of your fearful hearts. Witness to the presence of God in your midst. Tell stories. Tell stories like I just told you of my own family, of my own faith, of my own fearfulness. Tell stories to each other. You know what this entire um, book of Exodus is? The entire opening part of the Old Testament is? For the rabbis, it was the campfire stories that they told all along when they were in the wilderness. It was the stories they told when the children asked them, how did we get here? Tell us about Egypt, weren't we once slaves and now we're free? What's the promised land? Who's our God? Why is Moses in charge? Tell stories together. Witness. Tell your own story. Witness to the presence of God. Be wary of your fearful heart. Witness to the presence of God. Wrap arms around each other. One of the reasons why I'm a Presbyterian is I love baptizing babies. I love that moment. I mean, baptizing an adult is always awesome, but baptizing a baby feels like we are doing something that is holier and bigger than any of us. When you hold up this little child, who all they could ever do is spit up on my robe, and we say to this little one who can't possibly understand, little one, you are blessed. You're not better. We all know our kids are not better than other kids. We parent them. They're not better, but they're blessed. On this day, you are being claimed by God who knew you and chose you. You're being surrounded by a group of people who will be saying blessings over you every week, even if they got to practice that second line a little bit more. They are gonna, you are blessed. Do you know why we baptize babies? One of the old midrash of our theologians of our faith said so the reason we baptize babies is because when the Israelites went through the Red Sea, they carried their children with them, and the water splashed on the babies as much as it splashed on them. We are part of a group people of God that is bigger than us. There are times when people carry us, and there are times when we need to wrap arms around each other and take each other through the Red Sea. Be wary of your fearful heart. Witness to the presence of God in your midst. Wrap arms around each other. And wade in. Go forward. One of the old Jewish stories, the rabbinic tales of this event, is that the Israelites heard to go forward and they began to go forward and the water didn't part until it got to here that they had to step into that water in faith. And there are moments when you must wade in, when you must step into the sea, eat the manna, drink the water from the rock, continue to go forward. Some years ago, when I was in the middle of a sabbatical season in my own church, and I was much younger and much thinner, I did this crazy bucket list thing called the Iron Man. Are you familiar with the Iron Man? It's a little ridiculous. I spent about three years riding my bike and learning how to swim again and then running. And I'm a big guy and running is not something that comes naturally for me. But I just went out and me and a buddy and I, we started training and two others of us and there were three of us and we were like 600 pounds of fun coming your way whenever we were going. And we were training for this Ironman. It was just an experience. Other people were competitors. We were participants. <laughs> we weren't competing with anybody. 
but we wanted to check, check this one off the bucket list. We wanted to accomplish it. It's this thing you do. You go swim for a couple of miles, and then you jump on your bike, and you ride your bike 112. And then when you're done with 112 miles on a bike, you then start running a marathon, 26 miles. It's just a really, really long, painful day. And the night before that we were preparing, we went to this event where they pulled all of us together, and they're letting us eat as much pasta as we want, and they're giving us instructions. And finally, they said, hey, we want to get your attention. We have one person we want to speak to you, just to give you a word of encouragement. We'd like to invite her up. She's a, she's a, a Catholic nun. And I looked at my buddy. We were both ministers. And I went, this is awesome, a Catholic nun. And they had her come up, and she wasn't any nun. She was Iron Nun. Her name is Sister Madonna Buter. She's the world record holder in her age group for the Ironman, which is for over 80. And here she is, this little nun who looks like a terrier, just all gristle and grin. And she stands in front of this group of people and she says, tomorrow is going to be a really long day. And for some of you, it's going to be a really hard day. Your bike could break down, your body could break down, you could find yourself in a dark place. You started with such good intentions and you could find yourself being so discouraged. But here's what I want you to remember. When you get to that dark place, when you get to that place that feels so hard you can't go forward, when you find yourself in that moment, remember this. You were loved into existence. You were loved into existence. This little nun tells all these type A athletes that deep within them, nothing you can do can make the universe or God or whatever you call it love you anymore. You were already loved into existence. Dear friends, as you go into Lent, as a church, you step into this next season of your ministry and as your life. As you seek to become a faithful congregation in a community of the world that there is so much unfamiliar, remember when you hit those moments that feel as if they are a dark place, when the fear comes around you, when you find yourself clinging to the people who you've wrapped arms with, when you feel the water splash around you, when you know you need to go forward, Remember, you were loved into existence. So be wary of your fearful heart. Witness and tell stories to each other, encouraging them about all the ways you experience God's men. Wrap arms around each other and wade in. Amen. <laughs>